2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. We will read the word of the Lord and have a time of prayer and then pick it up in verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Father, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. And Father, as we look at this wondrous letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these beloved saints in Corinth, Father, may we see so many similarities in our lives, in our society, and in the ministries that each and every one of us have this day. Father, uh, at this time when um, much is spoken of this holiday, Father, may we who know you, Father, may we who are called by your name, may we who have been redeemed hold firm with confidence and boldness your word of truth that we can walk in a manner that brings glory to you, to your kingdom, and to the adding of your kingdom in holiness and glory and majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. This text is fascinating. I kind of landed on um, on a word there in verse 12, conscience, because um, it is amazing what I see in our society, what I see in the body of Christ that deals with the conscience today. First of all, I want to remind you that your conscience is not the voice of God. All right. I, I see people today in the body of Christ who believe it is their responsibility to be others' conscience. Okay, um, I, I love you greatly. I would lay my life down for any of you. You are not my conscience. All right? But rejoice. I am not your conscience. All right, so now we got her made there, all right? But your conscience will be based on your highest perceived standard of right and wrong, all right? You can look across the history of humanity and look across our societies today, and you see that very issue. It is based on a degree that is perceived to be morally right or morally Wrong, And we looked at it when we looked at it in depth and we've seen it last week in Titus chapter one, uh, verses 15 and 16 and first Timothy four, two, that you can corrupt your conscience. Timothy, actually, Paul told Timothy in chapter four, first Timothy, that it is to the hypocrisy of liars that we will. And it literally the term would be brand your conscience. You can make it so callous, so seared that it is receptive to nothing. And I'm sure that without a lot of struggle, you and I can find areas where that has happened 
in, in our lives. I shared with you that an illustration that your conscience is your high court of the heart of man. Okay, uh, I thought that's a fascinating uh, illustration because uh, it is, except for one small thing. All the actions of the court is your conscience, whether it is witness for the prosecution or the witnesses for the defense. It's all the same conscience. The judge is the same conscience. I mean, you could take it down the court recorder. Is the same conscience. So it's a little difficult at times to sway your conscience. Um, and yet we live in a day and an age. And now I want to be specific to the church. That is trying its best to silence the conscience. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 and Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says that you have a sanctified conscience. It has been cleaned. By the blood of Jesus Christ. So as a Christian at the point of my salvation. At the point of your salvation. What happens is it's a clean slate. The past cannot condemn you. The conscience has been cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now it becomes my high and most holy duty to protect my conscience, which means that I need to start taking in a perceived standard that is based on the word of God and the word of God only. And yet the body of Christ here in America. Is warring to silence the conscience. I'm talking about the church, brothers and sisters. I'm not talking about lost people or politicians or these other things. I'm talking about the church. The church is striving to shut the conscience up. And yet our holy duty is to guard it. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse two is an amazing text. You will see this throughout the course of this letter. Speaking of his ministry, therefore, we have this ministry. Verse one says, we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness nor adulterating the word of God, but by a manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, in the sight of God. See, we and Paul understood this, that you know what? You can have people throw accusations at you. Unbridled. And yet when it comes down to it, what does your conscience says? Think about the Apostle Paul. What was Paul's perceived standard of right and wrong? The full counsel of God. So when he says my conscience is okay. Do you understand what he says? In light of the full counsel of God, my conscience is okay. And it doesn't really matter about your accusations. It doesn't matter about what people think. And the perceived standard that I have taken in the word of God, I have walked in the power of God, I have walked in a manner that brings glory and honor to my God, in the understanding of the knowledge and to this level that I have, my conscience before God is fine. That's a fascinating thought if you think about it. If you think about the writers saying, well, your conscience is the court. Okay, the court would be based on what standard? 
Well, in Paul's case, it'd only be based on God's word. Therefore, the court of my conscience says, you're fine. I bring all the witnesses, the accusers, the defendants, the judge. The conscience is fine. That's amazing. Have you ever thought about that? Peter even made comment to keep a good conscience. Because one of the things that we have learned is that a believer has no right to violate their own conscience. And, and, and it's one of, my, uh, one of my heartaches is the church has bought this I call it the theology of self-esteem. I am 53 years old. I have never in 53 years met someone with a low self-esteem. Never have I met anyone with a low self-esteem. I have met people who are so absorbed in themselves that they think that the world owes them. And they call it a low self-esteem. But I've never met anybody that's got a low self-esteem. This is damaging. This is damaging. This is destructive. This is deadly force in the church today. Wanting to silence the conscience. They, we have a desire in the body of Christ today to eliminate guilt. We have a desire in the body of Christ today to eliminate shame. And, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, whether it's a high point or a low point in the body of Christ, uh, I call it from the pulpit to the pew, we're trying it. I don't want you to be ashamed. No, I want you to be ashamed if there is something in the light of God's word that is shameful. Well, but he forgives you, but it's shameful. Look at what we tolerate today. Look, no, I'm not talking about, well, Tiger Woods. No, no, no. I'm talking about in the body of Christ. What do we tolerate today? There's no shame. And yet no believer has a right to violate the conscience. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, Romans 14. If you really want to see this in depth, I preached on this. Not only do I not have a right to violate my sanctified, God-bought conscience, I don't have the right to violate your conscience. I have watched people who violate other people's conscience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, You guard your body and don't do anything in sexual immorality to another's body. We are to watch it. We are to behave. And, and I see this all over. I watch people get, they get into it. I actually just had a, a debate. It wasn't a debate. People were asking questions. It's funny when they try to do this. What do you think about alcohol? Well, it burns when I have a cut. Well, can Christians drink? Well, it's like saying, can Baptists dance? Some can, some can't. Well, what about you? Well, let me share with you something. 
if I got a brother or uh, someone who has come along who has struggled with alcohol in their li- life, and I can say, well, I'm free in Christ. I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to have me a glass of wine, um, and you have a drinking problem. What did I just do? Okay, and my level's a little different. I'm a pastor. Look, the pastor's having a what? I mean, Charles Spurgeon used to take a shot of bourbon before he preached. I'm, no, I, some of you said, I wish he would. <laughs> okay? But, but I watch people, and, and I, what's the issue there? The, the issue isn't so much, are we involved with alcohol? I can go this simple. Very simple. Does it master you? I don't care what it is. Because, see, when I throw that out there, I can get a quarter pounder with cheese. Can master me. All right? And now, all of a sudden, you've got to deal with all kinds of things. You know, I have a hard time myself with overweight preachers. I do. What are you telling the congregation? I like to sit and evidently eat donuts. But I struggle with that. Now, I'm not going to run around and condemn a bunch of chubby pastors. Okay, but I, I will say, hey, listen. Well, I have a health problem. Well, yeah, they call it eating too much. <laughs> I, but, I, but I watched it. You see what I'm trying to get at? Why? You can do that and you may hurt another's conscience. And if you're in spiritual leadership, you should be paying attention. You know who's in spiritual leadership, right? That would be the male species. Now, if you want more detail on this, I would highly suggest that you go to our website and and dig up 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and have fun with it. Okay, because that was a few years ago. Okay, all right. When I read this, and if you look at your outline, uh, I want you to think about it because I talk about moral wrongdoing. I talk about relational wrongdoing and I talk about theological wrongdoing. And really, if you take those three, that is a summary of your conscience. I would like to tell you I figured that out on myself, but it just came to me this week. Wow, man, you kind of covered everything there. Okay, but it does. Think about it. My conscience will mess with me if I'm being wrong. My conscience will mess with me if I'm wronging another. And my conscience will definitely mess with me if I start getting spiritually crooked. Is there any other attack? When I think about my life as a, as a pastor, um, I can tell you that I have been attacked on all three levels. Whereas the Apostle Paul in this text is being attacked in all three at once. I don't know that I've ever been attacked in all three at once, uh, but I have been attacked accused numerous times in these three lines. Okay? Um, When that happens, then you can know this, that the false have arrived. If they attack you for something morally, and your conscience in light of God's truth says it's okay, then it's okay. If they attack you because... I remember somebody got mad at me one time because I hugged somebody. And, 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 and they said, well, you hugged that woman. And it's funny because if it had been a little ugly woman, 
They wouldn't have said a word. But you know what? This lady loves us. And I gave her a hug. And they said, well, I can't believe you're hugging her. Well, wait till I give her a holy kiss. Okay, now we're all going to go to jail. But you see what I'm trying to get at? Why? And, and, you know, I looked at it from my conscience and said, in light of what I know of the word of God, my conscience is fine. And then they will attack you on your theology. They'll talk you on it. Well, you sound like a Calvinist. Well, you're not Calvinist enough. And you, you sit there and go, what verse? And that usually ends the discussion. What happens is if I can take and attack the messenger, then it destroys the message. And that is where the false will creep in to bring satanic doctrine. Why? If you get the shepherd, what happens to the flock? And you know what's amazing about that? Every time. Every time. There were people in the church in Corinth who were trying to turn the church against the Apostle Paul. And they were doing an attack on him morally. They were doing an attack on him on his relationship. And they were doing an attack on his theology. They wanted to undermine Paul. They wanted to destroy the Corinthians who were trusting in Paul. Let's finish it off. So they would attack him. They wanted to attack his character. They would attack his integrity. They would attack his credibility. They wanted to undermine his authority. Do that. We can take his place. And when we take his place, we can replace the truth of God with Satan's error. That's why when you look at this letter, this whole letter, 2 Corinthians, is the heart of Paul. It's the heart of Paul. And, and, and I share this with you because when I look at 2 Corinthians, I look at that and say, this is the heart of ministry. This is the heart of ministry. Why? What was Paul's heart? (laughs) And you need to understand if you're doing it right, you all of a sudden are a target. And you will be attacked either on your moral standings or you will be attacked on your relationship. You will be attacked on or you may be attacked on your theology. You know, I had a bunch of people in here, uh, or not a bunch. I had a few who left here who says, well, Terry doesn't believe in spiritual gifts. (laughs) <laughs> when, I, when I was teaching 1 Corinthians, every message I started in chapter 12, 13, and 14, every message I started with, I believe in spiritual gifts. And I went back and I listened to myself online and said, I believe in spiritual gifts. And I kept thinking, so what part of that comes out? Terry doesn't believe in spiritual gifts. I don't understand that. I said, but that's what they, they were attacking my theology. I remember the first message I preached as the pastor here in Castle Rock Baptist Church. First, first message I preached. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. You have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God. And I just taught it. What does it say? 
It's a simple text. When I got done, I had people cussing me. And I was sitting there going, wow, boy, you know, guess I really messed that one up. And so I had to go back and I looked at it again. I said, no, what I taught was right. It's what it says. When we look at our ministry, we have to ask ourselves, as the Apostle Paul did here, what is my integrity in my ministry? Okay? What is my integrity in my ministry? What does it look like? You know, there were people who accused the Apostle Paul um, that what he was doing was an error and he wasn't called of God. That's a fascinating concept, don't you think? Being that the very church that's accusing him of this is a church because of Paul. They accused him of embezzling. They accused him of teaching a message of grace instead of law because he wanted sexual favors. They believed that he was ineffective because if he was truly doing the work of God, he wouldn't be stoned and left for dead. He wouldn't get thrown in jail all the time. He wouldn't be shipwrecked. He wouldn't have all these people trying to kill him. And then there was actually some who believed that he was teaching error. The Apostle Paul. Teaching error. That attack is still going on today. There are people out there today who say, Paul compromised the message. And I'm sitting there going, what? Throughout this letter, he will deal with various points of these attacks. But I want to drop in now because he makes some statements here that I watch people just get, they get funny. Verse 12, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. All right. Now, think about this for a second, because if you read the flow of it, what does he just ask them in verse 11? Pray for me. Pray for us, helping us through your prayer so that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf. On our behalf, for the favor bestowed on us to the prayers of many. That's fascinating. Don't you think? And then he moves right into that for our proud confidence. All right. You know what I'm seeing in that text? Verse 12 says, we are worth praying for. We are worth praying for. We are worthy of intercession. Why? Because our conscience is clear. Our conscience is clear. So I would, and you know, you think about this letter and you think about the Corinthian church, take first Corinthians and second Corinthians, then the two letters that we, that are missing that we don't have. These people were assaulting Paul and his ministry and those associated with him. And he says, instead of abusing us, we believe in our conscience, we are worthy of your prayers. That's fascinating. That's, that's, that's what you call getting them. Why? Our conscience is clear. Not only is our conscience clear, we have a proud confidence. 
and what our conscience is telling us. And literally, it's boasting. We are boasting in confidence. Are we allowed to do that? I thought that was like bad. (laughs) That boasting thing. Well, the word is calcasis in the Greek. Calcasis. Okay, and and, in the apostle Paul, he likes this word because he uses it somewhere around 60 times in his letters. And what's really cool is he uses it 29 times in 2 Corinthians. Okay? And the term calcasis means to boast or to glory in. Right? The word in itself can have a positive or a negative side to it. The negative side is that I am glorying in, or I am boasting in, or I am proud in my own achievements. Look what I did. All right. The positive side is, is that there is a legitimate confidence there in what God has done through a person's life. Okay. See the difference? Let me give you a biblical illustration of this just so that uh, there is no confusion. I don't want anybody going out of here saying, I'm boasting, buddy. I have a proud confidence and I don't pick something. This comes from a prophet, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercise loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You know, when I read that, it tells me I am supposed to boast. in what the Lord has done and is doing. See that? See that? Yeah. Why? Well, if you're a wise man, where'd you get your wisdom? I don't know. I'm not a wise man. Anybody know where to get the wisdom? Sorry. The Lord gave it to you. If you're rich, where'd you get your riches? The Lord gave them to you. If you're mighty, where'd you get it? The Lord gave it to you. So what should you boast in? The Lord. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us here. He says, you know what? We are proud confidence is this. We are boasting in what God has done. Now, if you think about it, I wonder if God, I wonder if Paul spent any time in the scriptures. Hey, maybe a little bit. Okay. When it came to the secret things of God, he only studied under Jesus Christ in the desert for three years. That's all. Okay. Uh, a little later, he'll say, you know, I know a guy who went to the third heaven. And what he saw there, he was told, shh, don't repeat. I'm thinking that that guy, he could boast. Dude, I'm in the heaven. So why are you doing back? Anyway, <laughs> that's better have been my argument. Why are you back? <laughs> um, 
But when I, I see this, it's not wrong to boast. And, and Jeremiah says the Lord delights in it, but we have to back away from it and start saying, where did I get it? How did I get this ability? You know, I think about the things that the Lord has allowed me to do in my just small ministry, and I just stand in awe. I don't understand it. I, I, I keep thinking of all the men who are out there and all of the amazing things that I have seen men and women accomplish. Why me? Why me? And so it's so easy for me to boast in what the Lord's done. I got to be honest with you. This is not on my plan of things to do when I grow up. And there's still times I look at it and think, what was I thinking? And yet, I think about what the Lord has done through this clay pot. And I think, wow. Wow. He flung the stars into the heaven. There's three or four of them when you think about it. And yet, you and I were important enough that he redeemed us. And he knows the hairs on our heads. And he even knows when a sparrow falls. That's how important we are. It's right to do it. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Why? We boast in the Lord. Why? It, it's, it's one of the things that I see today in the body of Christ, in, in the church, is what I call gimmicks. Okay? Um, let, me, let me ask you a question. Um, when... You go to a church today, okay? Who's the worship pastor? Who's the worship leader? It's usually somebody who's been hired. And nine out of ten, they are musically inclined. Okay? But do you know who the worship leader is in the church? Me. I am taking you to the book so that you will see he who is worthy of our... Worship. See what we've done? What are we boasting in? Because somebody... I hear people say, well, I have the spiritual gift of music. So do I. I turn my radio on, it plays music. I turn my radio off, I shut the gift off. There ain't no such thing as a spiritual gift of music. And I, and I struggle because Paul says it will be through the foolishness of preaching that souls are redeemed. Now you think about it. We have big screens now and, and video this and television this in the church. Why? And it's gimmicks. It's gimmicks. Why? Well, people can come to salvation. I remember a guy one time told me, he says, well, we share the gospel through ballet. Well, what is exactly what I asked him? How did, I, you mean like opera? Because my calculations on ballet, I have seen ballet. I did once in Chicago. Um, a long time ago. Anyway, they don't talk. How do you share the gospel without talking? 
Well, it's done through bodily communications. <laughs> what the heck is that? I don't know what that is. And I said, well, what a drag. And what was a drag was is that I had the opportunity. I, I was this, one of the speakers. <laughs> and I taught that blood of innocent men is not on my hand, for I have not forsaken the full counsel of God. <laughs> Which was not the appropriate message to bring to people who share the gospel through ballet. Okay? Why? I don't, I've never seen ballet where they talk, and I would think it would be a little annoying if somebody was walking around on their tiptoes, spinning around, trying to teach me a Bible verse. <laughs> I, I, I'm just not spiritual enough to handle that. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I... I know I ain't going to no ballet. I've seen it. I've sat through it. It was part of court-ordered punishment. (laughs) Just kidding. We boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Paul actually quotes the same thing. We are in a time and an age in our churches today where we want gimmicks. It's gimmick gospel. All right? Well, if you sing a lot, I know pastors right now says you keep priming the pump with music, priming the pump. What does that mean? I I grew up in a rural area and I know what it meant to prime a pump. You pour this little water, a cup of water down this thing. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And hope that it would take and it would start sucking up water. I'm trying to figure out how music is doing that. Well, the music stirs the soul. Well, let's get some of these good rock and rollers saved and we can turn the whole world upside down. That ain't going to work, people. Who was the Apostle Paul's worship leader? Paul. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody know who led the worship team for Jesus? Nobody. He didn't need anybody. And they would stand in awe because no one had ever spoke as he spoke. You know why it's that way? So that you and I cannot take pride in it. We prime the pump. We hang a video up. We do ballet or we do an orchestra. Listen, and I love music. I don't want you to get that. No, I love it. That does not save souls. It is the preaching of the gospel that say, please understand the word that I used. Preaching. The proclamation of God's word saves souls. Not dialoguing. I'm not going to present you the gospel. I am going to preach. Because that's where people get saved. Now I know that's, that sounds silly. No wonder. But if you think about it, today preaching is something bad. It's something bad. Well, they're just preaching at you. It ain't working. No, sorry. <laughs> Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And yet he says, I boast in it. I boast in it. See, all of this is, has to do with the attack. And and the attack is the integrity of the Apostle Paul. 
The, his heart is missions. Is, is, is I want to serve a ministry. You know what? It's amazing. I know I got into trouble with this in our denomination. They wanted to speak on church planting. And I explained to him Romans. Paul says when he went to Rome, he didn't want to start the second Baptist church. He says, I want to come and bear fruit. Why? I do not want to build on another man's work. It's an interesting concept. Uh, unless you're in a convention of church planners, <laughs> then they don't, they think you're being cranky. The Apostle Paul says, I have a clear conscience before God. This is my proud confidence. This is my proud confidence. Listen, if you think about this, that's the ultimate defense. Listen, if you're in the ministry, which if you're saved, you should be. Okay. And if, if you're not serving right now, then you've either been taken prisoner by the enemy. Do, do I need to explain to you who he is? All right. Or you're ignorant and don't know. Or you are in non-repentant sin and have set yourself off on the sideline. Once you are in the ministry, then you know the accusations will come. They will come from the outside and you will hold them up to your conscience. You know what? It's better that everybody on the outside is accusing you than your conscience. See, today, the church is eager to ignore a sound conscience. It's, it's like discernment. All right? There's a spiritual gift of discernment. And we don't want to hear it. Why? Because it is supernatural ability to say there's a problem. <laughs> and I believe the reason so many Christians are devastated in their lives this day is that, that sin rules them, overwhelms them, crushes them. That they are not responding properly to their conscience. I believe that. Why? I have seen it. I bear witness to it. It is a testimony that I have seen. That Christians, when their conscience say, pull up, pull up, pull up. Their first response is, how do I shut this off? How do I... I Some of you would try to disagree with me. I will ask you one simple question. Why is it we always blame the circumstances? Uh, that, that's, see, see, Adam would have used that, but he was in the Garden of Eden. Uh, well, it's my society. Oh, wait. <laughs> He blamed, Adam blamed God. You made the woman. I wouldn't have stumbled if it hadn't been for the woman and you made her, so it's your fault. 
Now, I look at that and think, golly, that's nuts. I mean, I wouldn't say that even thinking about it, let alone face to face with him. I can go more with it was the snake's fault. But we do. We're all guilty of it. I would have given more to the church if I'd have gotten my raise. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. If you're not giving now sacrificially, you'll never get it if you get a lot. But you know what? I rejoice because God will stretch it or contract it. See, we blame our circumstances and, 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 or we, and I'm talking about the church today, right now, people. I ain't talking about lost people. I'm talking about people who will show up at your Bible studies, who will show up on your Sunday morning and your candlelight services and all this other stuff. They'll be there. They'll even get up early, like at the crack of dawn on, on, on Easter Sunday so I can be the sunrise service, which is, I never did understand that. But anyway, and they'll do that. But they will blame their circumstance or they'll reclassify sin. Well, it's not sin. I have a disease. No, it's sin. Well, no, you don't understand. I'm an alcoholic. It's alcoholism. No, you're drunk. That's no big deal. I mean, I don't know anybody who grew up. You know, when I grew up, I'm going to be a heroin addict. I'll strive at that. That ought to be good. No, they do it one time and they keep appeasing their conscience over and over and over again. And no, it becomes an idol. It becomes an idol. And you don't have to be a deep theologian to understand that God has a problem with idols. I call it a psychological tragedy. They're taking the very warning system that God has put in every man, woman, and child and saying, let's change its blame. See, and here, Paul, now look what he says here. For our proud confidence. You know what that is? That'd be at least him and Timothy. Him and Timothy, if you look through it, a testimony of our conscience. For we write nothing. And we are your reason to be proud as you are ours. Why? He says that both of us, our testimony of our conscience, they, those who were ministering with the apostle Paul, could boast at what God had done through them. They're not bragging. It's legitimate testimony. Look what God has done. And we are together. See, it's the Lord's power through their lives. That's awesome. And that power was so massive that they both had a clear conscience. See, the word testimony, you see, there's a testimony of our conscience. Um, literally means the witness is evident. Look at it. The basis, the ground, the reason, the evidence of my conscience is my conscience. And think about it. You can't deceive your conscience. I watch people who start taking medicine. Well, you don't understand. I'm just depressed. So I take a pill. Really? No, you're taking a pill to shut up your conscience. Why? Depressed people have a conscience problem, don't they? I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. 
But the truth of the matter is, if you're depressed, why are you depressed? Something's bugging you. What's bugging you? Well, you, you, you just don't understand. Really? Dude, I can turn on the TV and be depressed. I can look outside and be depressed. But when your conscience gets involved and you are trying to shut it up, then it becomes an issue with you. And instead of dealing with the issue and say, hey, this is a warning and God is trying to protect me. God is trying to make me whole. God is trying to make me joyous. God is trying to make me complete. God is trying to overwhelm me with his presence. I'm sitting here trying to numb it. There is confidence in his conscience. It is evident. You see it. It is easy to spot. See, Paul put a lot of stock in, conf- in, in your conscience. Why? Because he understood that Christ's blood had given him a clean slate on his conscience. Now you got to remember, this guy used to murder Christians. He thought that was sport. And yet now he can stand and say, no, my conscience is clear. See, a clear conscience gives peace. Okay? A a clear conscience gives comfort. A clear conscience gives joy. And it does all of those things no matter the accusations from the outside. I personally thank God for the conscience because I thank God that the warnings of the conscience are for our affirmation. They affirm us. They strengthen us. They should bring us joy. They should bring us completeness. They should bring us contentment. They should bring us peace. Why? It's a warning. It's a warning. It's like going to one of these bridges. I seen a bridge when I was back on the coast and it's a drawbridge, except it was kind of a weird drawbridge. Instead of, you know, raising up or, you know, doing one of these things, this sucker just went boom, swung over to the side. And I thought, boy, that would embarrass you if you missed that. But they had these funny little gates up with flashing lights that says you're going to get wet. All right. And I thought about that. You know what? When them guardrails come down and them lights are flashing like the railroad track crossings. Hmm. Well, let's go around them. Great idea. Great idea. And yet that's what your conscience does. You see the warnings there. You think, well, I'll wait here until the train goes by or I'll wait here until the bridge closes. Why? I don't want to get wet or run over. And yet, when your conscience is telling you this is a bad place, this is a serious situation, you need to be careful of this, you need to watch out for this, you need to do this, then what do you do? You know, you think about it. Have you ever uh, neglected reading your scriptures? Say no. Never have I neglected the good book. Okay? But if you ever did, I guarantee you 24 to 48 hours after a minor neglect, your conscience would start doing this. So I tell people to say, well, do I have to be in church every day or when it's open? 
I said, well, what's your alternative? Well, but, you know, that almost sounds like legalism. Well, perhaps. But here's the problem that I have witnessed in my years. Miss one Sunday. Second one's easy. Okay. Miss the second one. Six months to a year. And it's usually a grinding thing. Just grinds and grinds and grinds. And by the time you come back, you just feel like you have been beaten ragged. Why? Because your conscience told you and you tried to shut it up. Listen, I think about all the times, you know, once or twice, maybe a few more, that I have been accused of something. And, and I mean, it was just, just this week I had somebody come who wanted to meet with me and, and they said, you know, we've listened to some of your messages on, 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 online and, and, and I got to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He says, why do you hate Catholics? <laughs> we sense that you hate Catholics. And I said, well, you know, whatever gave you that idea? Well, hey, you know, aren't you Baptist? <laughs> I, was like, I don't know. What day is it? Um, and, and I said, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I said, uh, you, you're not going to find out that I hated Catholics. I don't hate Catholics. Um, you know, whatever. And he says, well, what's the difference between you and my priest? <laughs> and I smiled at him and said, I'm married. <laughs> no. And I said, here's the difference. And I said, and I get into trouble with this with the Baptist. He said, well, what's that? I said, I believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority. The Catholic believe that the church is the ultimate authority. And he says, well, but the, the, the church has, has had the power. And I said, they've done well with it. I said, they've done well with it. Don't you think? Well, my priest says, and I said, well, why do they have so many lawsuits for sexual immorality? I said, what are you guys going to do now that you're allowing the Anglicans to come in and take on the priesthood? And if they're married, they can bring their wives with them. And yet the Catholic priests can't. I said, so when the church believes that it's the ultimate authority, who's really driving the bus? Men are. I said, that's the difference. That's the difference. Okay. But where did that come from? I want to accuse you of hating Catholics. I don't, well, that's not true. I know a handful. And I don't, I don't care. I, I, you know, you believe you do all their rules and regulations, you're going to get saved. Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. But every time that that happens, when someone wants to accuse me, the first thing that I do is listen to what does my conscience say. And I've had some strange, I've had some extraordinarily hurtful accusations thrown at me in my years. And every time, just that consistent, just that consistent, that consistent, I go, all right, Terry, in light of the amount of scripture that you comprehend, how are you looking at this? Are you guilty? See, what does my conscience say? My conscience knows the standard. 
My conscience can be trusted to tell me what I need to know. And if it's going pull up, pull up, pull up, it knows what's going on. It knows the standard and it knows that I'm in danger. And you know what I've learned in my years of looking at the word of God? It has never failed me. Never, ever has it failed me. And yet I watch the church today want to shut it off. When you examine your own heart, no matter the accusations, can you say I have a clear conscience before God? Paul and Timothy could. No matter what might be being said about you, there's a peace in your heart that the accusers cannot touch. And that's what Paul is telling us here. See, let's be realistic. If it came to knowing the word, I'm thinking Paul and Timothy probably had a good line on it. What do you figure? And yet they could say before God, hey, my conscience is fine. See, conscience affirms was affirming Paul and Timothy. And if we don't deal with this issue of conscience properly, the church is going to sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into iniquity. That you won't know her. See, what is happening today will only increase the tragedy of Christians falling into more and more and more sin. And I, and I watch it. I, I got people who want to point out sin all the time. They think they are the conscience. I got news for you. When I get close to it, my conscience is already bugging me like you could never bug me. If every one of you accused me, it wouldn't do you any good if my conscience was telling me it's peace. But if none of you knew a thing and my conscience was accusing me, where am I going to hide from it? You know, I get through it. Well, you need accountability. <laughs> yeah, that's what I need. What's your conscience do? Well, you don't understand. My conscience ain't trained. And whose fault is that? I would suggest you get to working on it. We are moving in the body of Christ these days uh, to divide shame and guilt. And we don't want shame and guilt to be the responsibility of sin. Paul told young Timothy, Timothy 1.19, that these people who do not keep the faith in a good conscience, they have rejected it and they shipwreck their faith. Listen, today... There's a lot of, there's industries out there to shut up our conscience. And yet many consciences cry out with shame and they cry out with guilt, doing everything they can do to silence the conscience. And yet the conscience will never be silent. It will not shut up. You can ignore it. You can turn it off. You can medicate it. That's one of the things that I've seen going on. It started years and years and centuries ago with alcohol. Why? I can medicate my conscience. Why? I can make it shut up. 
Oh, and then we can start doing marijuana or we can start doing cocaine or we can start doing heroin. Now, the generation who came up with that idea actually have PhDs and they give it to you legally. Oh, I can medicate your conscience. Take this. This will make you up. Take this. This will make you down. That's what we did in the 60s and 70s. And now we're doctors. And yet the conscience cries out. And you know what? I see it today. And I'm going to close with this thought because this is the way I see it the most today. And it's how the gospel is presented today. We are so concerned about silencing our own conscience that we want to feel comfortable about ourselves. We want to have a a good self-esteem. We want to make sure that anyone that we try to reach with the gospel feels good about themselves too. I feel good and I want you to feel good because Jesus loves you. Kumbaya. So we present the gospel. We we present this shallow self-esteem gospel. If you listen today to the bulk of Christendom at what is said of the gospel, you would think that Christ was a savior to save you from trouble. Just listen to it. I don't care if it's television, if it's the radio, if it's the internet or whatever. See, Jesus came to save you from your sadness. Jesus came to save you from meaninglessness. Jesus came to save you from sorrow. Jesus doesn't want you to be a failure. Jesus doesn't want you to be lonely. And he's here to save you from these things. And you know what? The Bible emphatically says he came to save you from your sin. Listen, did you get that? He didn't come to save you from my sin. He came to save you from your sin. And let me tell you something. That's tough on our egos. See, the issue is sin. And what I hear today in the pulpits ain't got nothing to do with sin. Jesus wants you healthy, happy, and wise. Well, that's that prosperity gospel. I don't care what denomination, you cut it across. Jesus wants you to be smiling. I remember a guy preaching a message one time. You remember the smiley face dude? The yellow with the... And that was, he used that as an illustration. He kept walking around with this thing, talking about being happy. Don't worry, be happy. And I'm sitting there going, but where's the Bible? Oh, wait, the Bible has those in there that worry. (laughs) You're not going to be happy. Today, we present the gospel. We don't proclaim it. And it minimizes sin. It minimizes guilt. And it minimizes shame. See, we, we seek to make people feel better. We want you to feel good. You need to feel good about yourself. We we know life is tough. See, the fundamental truth about the gospel is, is that we are all depraved, we are all enemies of God, and we are all damned sinners. 
How's your self-esteem doing? And the only way to find real forgiveness, to find real freedom, is to recognize that I'm the sinner. Because once you get to that place, you will humble yourself in repentance and you will fall on your face before a holy God begging for forgiveness. Jesus Christ came. That little baby that we're going to celebrate his birth in a manger, he came to save us from sin. Your sins, my sins. That's what our message needs to be. And if people don't like, and if people don't listen to their conscience in this time, let me tell you something. They will listen to their conscience in eternity. Okay? No one's conscience will be silenced in hell. Okay? And perhaps the greatest single torment of that place is their conscience. See, in hell, the sinner's conscience is going to turn on them with all the fury that the conscience has. And it will remind them moment by moment for eternity that they alone are responsible for the agony and the torment that they are suffering. It just makes you want to stand up and say Merry Christmas, doesn't it? But it's true. It's true. But do you see what we've corrupted? Christmas is the little baby. Christmas is Mary and Joseph. Some wise guys. The shepherds. Angels. Singing Hosanna. Yeah. To save depraved enemies of God from eternal damnation of their own doing. Hmm. Different view, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, please, I beg you, I beseech you with all that is in me. Listen to your conscience. It is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever bestowed on humanity. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for that my brothers had a confidence in the testimony of their conscience. Father, I pray for this group who has gathered this day. That, Father, we bow before your word in humble adoration. And yet, Father, we thank you for our conscience. And that, Father, each of these people, these precious souls, will be able to rest in the assurance and affirming of their own conscience. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of our conscience. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the redemption of these poor, wretched souls that are ours. And that, Father, that your conscience, that your work on that cross with your Son cleansed our conscience. Father, may it be an urgency in our hearts to protect them, 
to guard them and to help our brothers and sisters that come into our lives to walk in a manner worthy of your great calling. In Christ's name.